From uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast. This is Alyssa Carroll, and I am your host and the creator of at serial underscore killing on Instagram where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they display their famous vile and disturbing behaviors. This week's podcast will be about Bob Berdella, and I have to warn you, it is going to be intense. Bob was known as the Kansas City Butcher and the Collector. He killed his first known victim at 35 years old. He was a sadomasochist who suffered from sexual dysfunction and he was a narcissist. His kill count was six. So Robert Andrew Berdella Jr. was born on January 31st, 1949, making him an Aquarius in Ohio. So as we always do, let's get into some history from that time. In 1949, World War II was finally over and life in the United States was beginning to settle down and prosper. Factories could now concentrate on meeting the demand for the cars and televisions that consumers wanted. The first soap operas were beginning to premiere on daytime TV and, logically, advertising began to boom because more and more people were beginning to own televisions and therefore, commercials were prime real estate in the broadcasting business. Also, there were already whispers of color televisions coming to market. The Emmy Awards were first aired at this time on U.S. television. The first Porsche car was shown at the International Automobile Show in Geneva. Now, this next one's going to be important to all of the true crime fans. You guys will understand the significance because... The first Polaroid cameras were created, and it cost $89.95, which was, again, an astronomical amount of money at that time. The first 45 RPM vinyl records are introduced in 1949, as well as Silly Putty that was sold in Little Plastic Eggs. Some other notable people born in 1949 were actors John Belushi, Jeff Bridges, a.k.a. The Dude, Meryl Streep, Jessica Lange, you would know her from American Horror Story, Sigourney Weaver, musicians Lionel Richie and Bruce Springsteen, and even fashion designer Vera Wang. So the average household yearly income had increased from our last two podcasts to be just around $3,000 a year, and the cost of a new house was, on average, about $7,500. A new car had nearly doubled in price in 10 years, and it was roughly $1,420 on average. A gallon of gas was $0.17. The hourly minimum wage was $0.70 an hour. 
sell groceries in 1949. You could get sliced bacon, bananas, small bottle of bleach, a cantaloupe, a bag of coffee, and fresh chicken, and it would cost about $3.09 at the store. That price today would be roughly $22, and yes, I did the math by checking my own local grocery store ads. George Orwell's book, 1984, was first published in the United Kingdom. This book is considered to be one of the most influential novels written around this time. It takes place in the future, where a totalitarian state sets out to control the thoughts of its citizens in order to rewrite history. It even coined terms such as Big Brother and Thought Police. The book was wildly successful, and its themes and philosophy are still discussed, and people still debate its nature even to this day. Also at this time, Russia was able to create its own nuclear bomb, thus increasing tensions between them and the United States. So, the Cold War began. In China, Communist leader Mao Zedong established the People's Republic of China on October 1st after the Nationalist leader was forced to flee to Taiwan. The Geneva Convention, which was a series of international diplomatic meetings, were going on at this time. It was to try to provide protections for the humane treatment of wounded and captured military people, medical personnel, as well as civilians during wars. In 1949, after World War II, they were significantly updated. NATO, or the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, was established during this time. Basically, it was to help defend and protect Europe from the ever-aggressive Soviet Union influence during that time, especially Eastern Europe. This organization included the U.S., Belgium, Great Britain, Italy, France, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, Denmark, Canada, Portugal, Norway, and Iceland. President Truman gave his fair gave his fair deal speech during his State of the Union address in which he described how every United States citizen should expect from their government a quote fair deal. This included national health care insurance, public housing, and federal aid to education. He advocated for raising the minimum wage, giving federal assistance to farmers, and extending Social Security benefits for the elderly. However, citizens were leery because it sounded like socialism and most were anti-communism. In the end, minimum wage was increased and Truman was able to pass the Housing Act, helping the more unfortunate with home ownership, but national health care was rejected. So you see, even though the world events were still not perfect, like they really ever are, it is obvious that life for most of the planet, especially the United States, was on the upswing. Things seemed to be getting better and better. Bob Berdella was the first child of Robert Berdella Sr., who worked the line in a Ford factory, and Mary Berdella, who was a housewife. He had one brother that was seven years younger than him. Robert Sr. was of Italian descent, and he was devoutly Catholic, and had his sons attend religious classes, and the family never missed Mass. 
Bob was an intelligent child, but he was also extremely introverted. He preferred to stay at home rather than going to visit friends at their houses. He preferred to stay in the house rather than play outside. He was nearsighted and had to start wearing glasses when he was just five years old, as well as having a slight speech impediment. So as a young child, Bob was diagnosed with high blood pressure and was forced to take a few medications and therefore not allowed to play in any school sports. However, his younger brother excelled at sports. Berdella Sr. would belittle Bob about him not being athletic because his father was heavily into physical education and sports. His father would also become verbally and physically violent toward him, oftentimes beating him with a leather strap. But despite this, Bob did very well in school. He was described as difficult to teach, though. His peers stated that he acted aloof, thinking himself a bit above his peers. He was bullied and therefore steered clear of all social functions. When Bob Berdella began puberty, he realized that he was homosexual. During the early to mid-1960s, this was still considered to be immoral, so he kept it a secret and told no one for years. He attempted to have a girlfriend once, but it did not last long. By his mid-teens, he began to display a semblance of self-confidence, which would come across as an arrogant attitude toward other individuals. He displayed a fairly rude and condescending attitude, especially toward women. But he started learning about cooking and art, and he developed some showmanship. Though his family was deeply religious, the now 16-year-old Bob stopped going to Mass and he left the Catholic faith. During Christmas vacation in 1965, Bob and his family went to visit family in Canton, Ohio. And on Christmas Day, Bob's 39-year-old father, 39, suffered a massive heart attack and died in the hospital just a few days later. Though his relationship with his father had always been strained, Bob was very upset and sought solace in the Catholic Church that he had already left. Of course, this proved to not be a comfort, and he became cynical about all religious beliefs thereafter. Interestingly, his mother remarried quite quickly after his father's death, and Bob became very angry and outraged. He never bothered to hide his disdain for his mother or her new husband. So to keep his mind occupied, he began writing to pen pals overseas, and in turn, they would send Bob stamps from their region, photographs and mystical icons, and information about their ancient cultures and so on, and this fascinated Bob tremendously. He began to collect such things on his own, which would influence his career later. So Bob decided to get a part-time job at a local restaurant. While in the back of the building, Bob was violently raped by another man he worked with, but he never reported it. Bob also watched the movie, The Collector, which was about a man who kidnapped a young woman and held her captive in his windowless basement. In this movie, the man wants the woman for nothing more than a beautiful object to own. She becomes ill, and though the man tries desperately to keep her alive, she does die. But this movie left a big impression on Bob. In 1967, Bob Berdella graduated high school and he moved to Missouri to attend 
the Kansas City Art Institute. Away from his family, he finally felt comfortable enough to truly be himself and became open about his sexuality. His freshman year of college was great. He was well liked by his professors and his grades were good. He began studying to be a college professor, but by the end of his sophomore year, he had aligned himself with a group of friends and he started getting into drugs. He would then turn around and sell these drugs for more money. He also started resenting the authoritative staff at the college. So let's take a look at that time. For those that might not be familiar with 1968-1969, this was the time of the hippies, free love, drugs, and rock and roll. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, which led to violence and race riots all over the United States. Now, Kansas City is a very big city, so it would not have been immune to the riots and violence either. Also during this time, Robert Kennedy, JFK's brother, was shot and killed in a hotel after a speech in California. People were also protesting the Vietnam War. The Beatles had just released their White Album and another very famous serial killer had just started catching the spotlight, the Zodiac Killer. So, it would be reasonable to assume that Bob's actions while in college weren't exactly all that different from most of the other kids. College campuses during that time were filled with drugs and political debates and protests. So, in one of his classes, Bob was assigned an art project. He decided to graphically kill and cook a duck in front of the class, which horrified and disgusted his peers and the professor. Bob stated that it was, quote, art, but he dropped out of school not long after. He later said this fed his fledgling fantasies about torturing and killing humans. Though no longer a college student, Berdella continued to be a drug dealer until he sold methamphetamine to an undercover cop and he was immediately arrested. He pled guilty, but he only received a five-year suspended sentence. He was then quickly arrested again for possession of marijuana and LSD, but was released five days later for lack of evidence. Knowing that his days of being a drug dealer were coming to a close as he now had a reputation with the authorities, he got a job as a short order cook. He had no intentions of returning to Ohio, so he bought a house in the Hyde Park District of Kansas City, which is just outside of downtown. He was living his life completely out in the open and spent most of his time with male prostitutes, drug dealers, and runaway boys. Bob did throw himself into being a chef and he worked hard, even working for a few very popular restaurants and country clubs in Kansas City. He joined the local chefs association and helped create a training program for aspiring chefs. In the late 1970s, Bob joined the South Hyde Park Crime Prevention and Neighborhood Association, eventually becoming their chairman, and he started befriending people who were drug addicts or petty thieves to try to help them get their life straightened out. It seemed, and his neighbors concurred, that he acted like a foster parent to these young boys, and the locals were largely impressed with his actions. But... Bob was becoming increasingly upset and frustrated when his efforts were largely for nothing. He was sexually active with some of his, quote, wards, 
using that as a means of control, but the ones that agreed willingly were allowed to stay at his house rent-free. Throughout his life, Berdella had kept and maintained contact with his pen pals across the globe. Because of this, he had accrued an impressive collection of oddities that he began to sell out of his home. Surprisingly, it became a profitable side business that grew quickly. By 1981, when he was 32 years old, he had established several contracts with both national and international contacts for his own business. He made enough profit that this became his full-time job and he quit being a chef. He then decided to rent a space at the Westport Flea Market as his business was growing too large to do out of his home, and he named his booth Bob's Bizarre Bazaar. He continued to sell odd things like occult books, jewelry, human skulls, and much more. At times, he made good money in his shop. At other times, he would either have to sell his things to other shops at a discounted price, or he would go out and steal things to sell. Bob met and began a serious relationship with a Vietnam veteran who did have severe PTSD. However, the relationship did not last long, and out of that disappointment, Bob began picking up male prostitutes to occupy his time. So at Bob Berdella's shop in the early 80s, he befriended another merchant who had a booth next to his by the name of Paul Howell and his 19-year-old son, Jerry. At first, Jerry and his friends would openly mock Berdella for being gay, but Bob later stated that Jerry confided in him that the boys were secretly sexually active with other boys. Now, whether or not that is true, we will never know, but what we do know is that young Jerry and Bob became friends and started spending a lot of time together. On July 5th, 1984, Jerry stated that he wanted to go to a dance hall in a neighboring area and Bob offered to drive him. He then gave Jerry alcohol and Valium while in the car, which rendered Jerry nearly unconscious, then drove him back to his house and injected him with a high-powered tranquilizer. He then carried the unconscious teen upstairs to his bedroom and tied the teen to his bed and gagged him. So this is the part where I warn you guys, this next part is very graphic. For the next 28 hours, Jerry endured the unimaginable, repeated, vicious rapes. Sometimes Bob raped him, sometimes Bob raped him with foreign objects, and he endured extreme torture. When Jerry would scream and beg to be released, Bob would drug him and then continue. Bob also took Polaroids and kept very detailed notes about everything he did to Jerry. Finally, the teen died from asphyxiation, a combination of his gag and his own vomit. Bob later said he did try to resuscitate the teen, but it was too late. Once he knew Jerry was dead, Bob Berdella dragged his body to the basement where he hung the body upside down above a large cooking pot and made some incisions in the teen's body to allow the blood to drain overnight. He took Polaroids of this act as well. The next day, he dismembered the body, double-wrapped the sections in newspaper and trash bags, 
then put the remains in his garbage bin outside for the trash company to take to the landfill. So the police did come to question him about Jerry's disappearance, being that Bob was the last one seen with the teen, and he stated that he had dropped Jerry off at the dance hall as promised and hadn't seen him since. Bob didn't kill again for nearly a year, but, just like most serial killers, once Berdella got a taste, his urge to torture and kill again would not stop. He had finally lived the fantasy that he had since he'd watched the movie The Collector so many years ago, and he later stated that became the motivating psychological force behind all of his murders. Bob Berdella's next victim was 23-year-old Robert Sheldon. Robert was a drifter who had stayed in Bob's house before. Robert showed up on Bob's doorstep and asked if he could stay with him again. Now, Robert was an excellent roommate. He cleaned up after himself, he paid his rent on time, and though Bob later claimed to not be sexually attracted to him, he decided to play with him regardless. So, on April 12, 1985, Bob arrived home to find Robert on the couch drunk. Bob used sedatives to drug Robert, then managed to carry him upstairs and restrain him. And again, folks, I have to warn you that this one is pretty graphic. Bob used piano wire to bind his hands, which cut into his skin. He used a Q-tip to wipe drain cleaner into one of his eyes. He poked needles under his nails and even forced construction caulk into his ears for three days straight. When a roofer came on the third day to work on Bob's roof, he decided he needed to kill Robert, so he put a bag over his head and suffocated him. He got rid of the remains by dismembering the body in the bathroom and putting the pieces out in the trash bin as he had before, except the head. He kept that as a trophy, only he buried it in the backyard. Bob kept yet another set of Polaroids as well as meticulous notes about everything he did to Robert. Only two months after killing Robert Sheldon, Bob found Mark Wallace asleep in his backyard shed. There had been a thunderstorm and Mark was seeking shelter. Mark was an acquaintance of Bob's and he knew that Mark had depression, so he offered to inject Mark with Thorazine to help calm his nerves, to which Mark agreed. Bob then took Mark upstairs, bound him, and began to torture him. He fastened clamps to Mark's nipples and sent intense electric shocks through his body until Mark would fall unconscious again, only to wake up and have this repeated over and over. Bob also injected various chemicals directly into Mark's muscles in his back. The pain and the drugs became so intense that in less than a day, Mark died. Bob disposed of the body in the same manner as his other victims. On September 26, 1985, Bob Berdella got a phone call from Walter James Ferris, asking if he could come stay with Bob for a short while. Bob agreed for the sole purpose of making him his next victim. They met at a bar, had a couple of drinks, then they went to Bob's house. Once Walter was in the house, Bob drugged him with tranquilizers, carried him upstairs, and tied him to his bed. 
For the next 27 hours, Bob tortured him almost without pause. Berdella attached alligator clips to Walter's shoulder and genitals. He then sent 7,700 volts of electricity, which is enough to cause respiratory paralysis and severe burns on the body, through his body, sometimes up to five full minutes at a time. He also stuck needles into his neck, sexually assaulted him with inanimate objects, among other horrible tortures, and the pain and stress became so intense, Bob noted that James was unable to stay in a seated position for more than a few seconds and be able to breathe. As always, he kept very careful notes about each act of depravity that he inflicted on Walter. Finally, after the 27 hours of continued torture, Walter died. In his notation of the experience of Walter's death, Bob simply wrote, Stop the project. Nine months later, in June of 1986, Bob was walking through Liberty Memorial Park when he ran into another old acquaintance, Todd Stoops, who was a former male prostitute. Back when Bob knew Todd, he had had a wife and he and his wife had stayed with him before. Bob asked if Todd would like to go back to his house for lunch and Todd agreed, though it was understood that Bob was going to pay Todd for sex so that Todd could buy drugs. Berdella later stated that he was extremely attracted to Todd and intended to keep him alive as a sex slave. Once Bob got Todd into his house, he subdued him with strong tranquilizers and tied him to his bed, just like his previous victims. Because Bob was so sexually attracted to Todd, he decided he would torture and terrify him into total submission, but not kill him. He wanted a zombie-like lover. Sound familiar? So here's yet another warning as this one gets very, very graphic. So for the next two weeks, Todd would experience unimaginable pain and suffering. Bob injected him with drugs. He gave him strong electrical shocks through his eyelids in an attempt to blind him. And Drano was injected into his throat to try to make him mute. Bob raped him himself as well as using many other instruments, which ultimately resulted in sepsis and severe blood loss. Todd begged for his life. Bob tried to nurse him back to reasonable health, but Todd ultimately died, so? Bob disposed of him in the same manner as his previous victims. In the spring of 1987, Bob Berdella befriended 20-year-old Larry Pearson, whom he met in the flea market. It didn't take Bob long to invite Larry to live at his house. In June, Berdella decided he would keep Larry and got him drunk. He then injected him with tranquilizers, drug him down to the basement this time, and tied his arms above his head. Bob tortured Larry with the same methods as his previous victims. Drano injections, repeated rapes, and high voltage electric shock. He also used a metal rod and broke several bones in Larry's hand. This went on for six weeks. Finally, Larry bit Bob's genitals so severely that Bob had to go to the hospital. There, they stated that he would have to stay. Bob, however, rushed home 
murdered Larry, and then went back to the hospital. On May 29, 1988, Bob Berdella picked up his last victim, 22-year-old male prostitute Christopher Bryson. Bob offered Christopher money for sex and took him to his home. Once in the house, Bob hit Christopher over the head with an iron rod and knocked him unconscious. He tied him to his bed and repeated many of the same tortures as his previous victims, plus swabbing his eyeballs with ammonia while saying, quote, You did not choose to be here, but you are. For you to survive being here and for you to make it, it could either be rough or it could be easy. If I grow to like you and trust you, then I could do special things for you, such as buy you cigarettes, pick up a movie on the way home from work, and so forth. Don't try to fight me, or you'll just get more of what you got earlier. You see, what you got is nothing compared to what you can have. I've gotten this far with other people before, and they're dead now because of mistakes they made. The only thing you need to think about are you, me, and this house." Unquote. After a few days, Bob told Christopher that he was contemplating backing off of the more horrific torture, but that the rapes would continue with no exception. Some days later, Christopher noticed that Bob had left some matches near enough for him to be able to reach. He burned through his restraints, jumped from the second story window, and yelled at the first person he saw on the street to call the police. He was naked, save a dog collar and leash. He had broken his foot from the fall, and he was bleeding. The person took him to a neighboring house, and they contacted the police. Once they arrived, Christopher gave them all of the gory details, including the torture and sexual abuse he had endured, as well as graphic Polaroid pictures of what looked like dead men. They then took him to a nearby hospital and submitted the request for a search warrant of Bob's house. Not long after, Bob returned home from work and was immediately arrested. After Bob Berdella was taken into custody, the police searched his home and what they found was shocking. Syringes, an electrical transformer with wires leading to the bed, pill bottles for sedatives, eyedroppers, a long iron pipe, rope, leather belts, a human skull inside of a closet, human teeth in an envelope, a hacksaw, a miter saw, a chainsaw, and all three of those had pubic hair and blood all over them. A total of 334 Polaroid pictures of young men in various stages of torture and death, a decomposing head in the backyard, several human vertebrae in the yard, torturous sexual devices, and so much more. And yet another significant find was on top of the dresser, his notebook describing in vivid detail each step in his process from his victim's capture until their death. The authorities interviewed people who lived in and around where Bob lived or was known to hang out, and many of them stated that he had a bad reputation for drugging and abusing the male young prostitutes, so many of them would not go with Bob. 
James Ferris's wife had to identify her own husband through the disturbing Polaroids, including when he was already dead. Jerry Howell's father had to identify his son from pictures of him hanging upside down in Berdella's basement. Another young man was able to identify the rest. In 1988, Bob Berdella, in a plea deal to avoid the death penalty, pled guilty to his charges and was sentenced to six life sentences with no possibility of parole. All of his possessions were auctioned off to help pay for his legal fees, and an anonymous man bought his house and had it demolished. Bob Berdella tried to convince the world that he was actually a good person who had done great things for the Kansas City community, that he had simply made mistakes and resented being, quote, demonized in the media. Well, I've had the media clamoring to get interviews with me. And after I made my last pleas, I wanted to get at least part of my side of it out. I found it very hard to find any way to do that in Kansas City. The media has so biased my case, portraying me as being non-human, and their motivation is no separate from what the way I treated my victims. I treated them as something less than human. He also complained about prison conditions and that the staff were refusing to give him his heart medication. Bob Berdella died of a massive heart attack while in prison at the Missouri State Penitentiary on October 8, 1982. He was 43 years old. His only surviving victim, Christopher Bryson, changed his name, moved to southern Missouri, and started a whole new life. So, the information we have about Bob Berdella is that his father was physically abusive to him. The leather strap he beat him with was most likely his belt. His father very much favored his little brother, who was athletic, something Bob could never be as he had had high blood pressure from a very young age. So then, Bob grows up to not respect authority, and he preyed on much younger, athletically built young men who he then abused horribly. So was he born to kill? Was he conditioned to kill? It's hard to say. What's your opinion? You can leave me comments on my Instagram page at at serial underscore killing. Thank you so much for listening, and have a great day. Music by Kevin MacLeod on Incompetech.com.